Thanks, Marielle. Good evening. Welcome to Uni Church. Uh, I'm Rowan. If you don't know me, uh, great to get to know you after the service. Come and say hi. Uh, we're working our way through the book of Ephesians, uh, which is a great time in our, in our church's history and for us now to sit under what God is saying to us and the way that He thinks about living in His world, how we live as people who've been captured by who Jesus is. So what I want to do as we start, as we've just heard the, the, heard the word read, is the high point of the service, that God would help us by His Spirit uh, to understand His Word and apply it to our hearts. So why don't we pray together and ask God to do that. Lord, tonight we give you great thanks that you are a God who is not silent. And you've spoken and made yourself known. You've revealed yourself through your Son and through your Word and you've given us your Spirit. And so tonight we ask a challenging prayer that you would shape our view of the world to be your view, not our own. You'd show us where we don't match up with what you have to say, and you'd help us to live your way. Pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, have you ever had that experience where you've known someone for a while, you've kind of spent time with them, and you've hung out with them, you might have even worked with them when you live next door to them. They seem like the kind of normal, run-of-the-mill person, but then you find out that they're a Christian, have you ever had that? You're like, whoa, I didn't know you were a Christian. I didn't know you believe those things. And now maybe you're here tonight because you've been invited by someone who is a Christian and you want to find out more about what Christianity is about. And so glad you're here looking into what the Bible has to say and the way we view the world. And I really hope tonight as we look at this, it'll be a helpful night to see the way God thinks and what He has to say to us. Uh, but maybe for you, you've grown up as a Christian or you've become a Christian and, and you meet someone you didn't know was a Christian and then finally like they are a Christian. You're like, hey, we, we share the same father. We're going to spend eternity together. Um, a number of years ago, probably five years ago, our neighbors moved out and we got some new neighbors moving in. And um, they moved in and I was really praying there'd be some non-Christians, we could get to know them. Anyway, this family just started, I don't know, there was a way they were acting and I was like, these guys look like Christians. You know that? When you see them and they just look like they're Christians, they kind of smell like they're Christians, they kind of act towards their kids. Anyway, we got talking and this guy, you know, anyway, worked for Christians Against Poverty. I'm like, surely he's a Christian. Fair enough, he was a Christian. I was so disappointed. I'm like, oh, I wanted to have non-Christian neighbors. And I told him that. And he's like, that's all right, we can talk to the other neighbors. <laughs> but the times that I hate are the times when I've known someone and they've known me for like six months or more and then they're surprised to find out I'm a Christian. Have you ever had one of those times? People say to you, what? I didn't, I didn't know you were a Christian. You go to church? I didn't know you were religious? And deep down inside me, this happened a number of times, my heart just sinks because it means I don't look any different to the world outside me. There is no distinguishable difference in the way that I live that someone outside who's known me for six months could call it out. Over the past two months, we've been hearing from the book of Ephesians on what it looks like to be a Christian, on the incredible blessings we've been shown that, that God has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. He's adopted us into His family, not because of anything we've done, but everything that He has done. He's brought us from death to life because we were dead fish in Him. And in this last section of the book of Ephesians, he, He's headlined everything else He has to say under verses 15 to 18 of chapter 5. Things that we ought to do not in order to be saved, but in response to who we are as God's children. Listen to what he says, 5 verse 15. Pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time, 
because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is and don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, sometimes we read this kind of, and we think, oh, this is just the anti-drinking verse, right? You know, like, oh, the Bible's no fun. The Bible doesn't want me to get drunk, and, and, and you kind of get frustrated with it. But actually, when you see what it's saying, Paul's saying that as God's children, there is a better way to live. Not filling yourself with hard liquor and spirits, but being filled by God himself, God the Spirit. What Paul is saying is that the Christian life is the Spirit-filled life. The life that's shaped and molded by the Spirit of God. And the life shaped and molded by the Spirit of God is a life that looks different. It looks different to the world around us. We saw two weeks ago that the the spiritual life is a life that's turned from self-indulgence to self-sacrifice. A life that turned from the darkness into the light of God. That turned from foolishness to listening to the wisdom of God. The Spirit-filled life is a life that when... People find out we're followers of Jesus. They go, yeah, I knew there was something different about you. That's what the Spirit-filled life looks like. And my hunch is that all of us here, if we trust in Jesus, we want to live that life. We want to look more like our brother and our Savior and our King. We want the Spirit to mold us to be more like Jesus. And the arena that plays itself out in most visibly in the way that we live is the arena of relationships, right? The way we relate to others. So in 5.21, Paul said, submit to one another in the fear of Christ. That's his controlling paradigm for what he says in this next section. Uh, The rest of chapter 5 and into chapter 6, and and the rest of the book is played out under this fear of Christ as we work out how we live as God's children. Not being afraid of him, like, oh, I'm afraid, like he's the boogeyman or something, right? Not that. But recognizing that he is God the Son. He's the one who's coming back to judge the living and the dead, that he's laid down his life for us and he's called us into God's family and the implications that has for the way that we live. Last week, we got to see um, Ming unpack really well um, what a spirit-filled marriage looks like. What does it look like to live as a Christian in the way that we relate between husband and wife? And if you missed that, jump online, have a listen to that talk. It's a really, really helpful talk. But it's not just a marriage relationship that's affected as we live out the Spirit-filled life. There's two other areas that the Spirit molds us in our relationships. It's a Spirit-filled family and a Spirit-filled slavery. Now, you expect the Bible to have something to say about family, don't you? You're like, yeah, you know, God kind of created family. In the beginning, He made Adam and Eve, and then He filled the earth through this family who had children, who had children, and sure, there were some downhill bits, but family was part of his plan from the very beginning. And you expect God to have stuff to say on what the spirit-filled family looks like. But spirit-filled slavery? Like, who came to church tonight going, yeah, I'm excited about spirit-filled slavery? No one. Well, I hope you didn't. We should chat if you did, right? There's a sense where you're like, that doesn't kind of sound like what God would be doing. Slavery is not part of God's creation. Genesis doesn't say, in the beginning, God created slavery and it was good. It's not there. You won't find that at at all. In the beginning, God created man and woman in relationship and he set up this institution of marriage and said, fill the earth and go out. And that was good. That was great. It was grounded in creation. But slavery? So I want to spend a moment tonight, before we dive into the text and see what it really means and how we apply it to ourselves, 
to help us think about how we read the Bible when we come across things like slavery that just clash with our culture. When we come across a passage like this and we see that it doesn't condemn slavery, it literally says, slaves, obey your earthly masters. We're like, what? How can the Bible say this? How can I trust the Bible in anything if this is what it says? I mean, at best, the Bible was maybe tone deaf. At worst, maybe it's just mistaken. And therefore, how can I move forward understanding what the Bible says? And how can I apply anything it says if it can't apply this rightly? Right? Have you ever felt that? Some scholars come along and they say, well, Paul, Paul just didn't see into the atrocities of kind of 18th century slavery and what they could bring. He couldn't have been prepared for what we now know. Just like you can't expect Paul to be prepared for you know, working out your internet filters for porn, so you can't expect him to understand the kind of lengths that slavery would get to. And So now we come along with 2,000 years of wisdom from church history, and, and we read back over what Paul says, and we can kind of fine-tune it to work out what he really meant, what the core of this is, and sift out the other bits that we now know are just not true, like slavery. It's not just with slavery that we start to do this, or that we have others point us to that, or we might do it. We do the same thing with marriage, don't we? That's between a husband and a wife. Come on, don't be so antiquated, Rowan. You know, we can see that two people love each other. It's, it's all right. We do the same with gender theory, with the ideas of heaven and hell, with the exclusivity of Jesus, that he's the only way to God. And, and we come and we go, look, we can't be that arrogant today. And we kind of move into PR mode with God. Have you ever found yourself there? In a conversation with someone like, oh, but hell, I can't believe in that. Or these views around slavery or, or gender theory or marriage. And you're like, well, you know. And then you try and work to show God to be a bit better than he actually is. He didn't really mean that. It was Paul that wrote it, so it wasn't really God. No, that's not what Peter says. Everything that Paul wrote was Scripture. What we need to do at this point is to recognize that we need to let God be God and let Him critique our culture rather than our culture critiquing Him. So there's two ways to kind of treat the Bible. I brought a real one with me. Look at this. It's not Greek, but it's still real. Uh, we can either look at the Bible and see what it says and go, well, I've got all this experience, so I'm reading what the Scriptures say, and then I'm kind of putting it through a grid, and I'm coming out with what the essence of it is, where I sit above the Bible. It's equivalent to kind of going like this. I'm going to stand on top of the Bible, and I'm going to interpret it. I'm going to stand here going like, well, I don't think that really fits. And it places me above God's Word. And that's what lots of people do. But actually, the other way to view the Bible is to say, no, this is God speaking to me. I need to sit underneath it. I need to let the Word of God shape and mold the way I think about the world. I need to see the world through it. Not like that, because I can't see you. But you know what I mean? By seeing what, what it has to say, and that's shaping the way I view the world. <laughs> Here's the thing. The people who actually um, move throughout human history and convince the world that, that slave trading as we know it from that 18th century slave trading was wrong were people who actually trusted that the Bible was their ultimate authority. They were people who sat under the teaching of the Word of God. Right, the 18th century world had no issues with slave trading. They didn't come along and go, well, guys, you know, everyone in the 18th century world said slave trading's wrong, and so we better update the Bible to kind of say, oh, there's some principles here that help us to say this kind of slave trading thing's wrong. No, they'd read the Bible, and when, when people are treating other people like they're just a piece of meat, they don't care about people dying as long as they make a profit, that they're not actually loving and caring for people. That's not what the Bible says of people who are made in the image of God. That is wrong. And so they spoke out into a culture. And it changed the world. People who sat under the word of God changed the world. William Wilberforce 
John Wesley, Isaac Newton, all of them were impacted through this. And the world as we know it that says slavery is so wrong, your friends that say, how can you be a Christian and believe that slavery is okay? You say, well, it took Christians to work it out. It took people sitting under the Word of God to actually see that reality. But we go, okay, so they saw that, but still... Isn't this idea of being enslaved or in, in slavery in some way still wrong? Like if Jesus brings freedom, shouldn't he free us from kind of any form of slavery? Well, again, we've got to let the Scriptures shape our view of the world. Otherwise, we actually miss the goodness of what God is saying. And an even greater freedom than, than just the idea of freedom from slavery, a freedom that well, we'll talk about in a minute. See, one of the marks of the Spirit-filled Christian is that we sit under God's Word. Even as we struggle with the different concepts that come up, we, we wrestle with them, we do it with the Word of God open. We won't always get it right, but we'll be humble enough to ask, where did you get that view from? And try and listen to others and be shaped by what others see as they look at the Scriptures and come back to the Scriptures and let that wrestle with our consciences and the Word of God shape and mold us. Pretending that we know better than God is to pretend to be God. Do you see that? To say, I know better than God. I, I, can, I can work out what's good for me and good for the world around me is to take the position of being God. It's just plain ludicrous. I can't speak and anything comes into creation. Like, I can talk to Siri and she doesn't even understand me. What is happening? I send these text messages to half our staff team, or maybe to you, and they say some cryptic thing. And I have struggles with this bit of human technology even doing what I'm asking it to do, let alone speaking and the world comes in and this complex reality that God has done. It's just plain ludicrous to think that we are smarter than God, but worse than that, it's actually treason. It's the exact thing that saw death enter into the world, questioning the Word of God. As the serpent came along to Adam and Eve, you won't surely die. This is good. You, 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 it's desirable. You should, you should take it. And so they distrusted the word of God and said, I know a better reality. I'm going to just update what God said to us about the tree of a knowledge of good and evil and say, look, God, he, he really just, I'm going to make you look a bit better. I'm going to do a bit of PR work for you. And what happened? You and I and the rest of humanity die. Because we reject the life-giving God. Because we step into His place and pretend to be Him. Now, as we read the Bible, we must let God be God. As we struggle to work out how, how we see the world around us and as it confronts our kind of views and our culture and society, we must work hard to see what God is saying and ask by His Spirit that He shape us to live as Spirit-filled believers. This is so important. So now let's go back and have a look at what God has to say about the Spirit-filled family. Ephesians 6, verse 1. Let's see what this looks like. Children, Paul says, obey your parents in the Lord because this is right. Now, most of us here aren't the age of kind of young children. 
Right? We're mostly finished school, um, we're at university or we're in jobs. We're not kind of that child that's dependent on their parents in, in that way. We're not being instructed anymore um, in, in how to live by our parents. Although for many of us, our parents would love to do that a bit more. They always want to tell us what to do. Don't do this, don't do that. Do you find that? You know, don't go with this person, do this thing, invest your money here. I just want to live my life through you. No one here would be feeling the pressures of that, surely. That was sarcasm. So... So as we read children here, verse 4 talks about fathers bringing up their children in the training and instruction of the Lord. I think as it talks about children, it's speaking particularly here of those that are still being brought up. They're not adult children. But there's something really important for us to note tonight. That Paul expects children of Christians to be addressed as Christians. Did you notice that? It doesn't say, hey, parents, make sure your children, hey, Christian parents, make sure your children obey you. It actually addresses the children. The expectation is that God, by His Spirit, through His Word, is addressing, like He has to Christian husbands and wives, and like He will to Christian fathers and Christian slaves and Christian masters, the expectation is that these are people who are now part of God's family and are called to respond to the Scriptures Not in order to be saved, not to be good little moral agents and then later on become a Christian, but people who've actually trusted Jesus. I think sometimes we can be tempted to view children of Christian parents as if they aren't Christian. I'm going to bring them up as little pagans until they make a decision for themselves, then they're Christian. But that's not what Paul talks about here. Now, I'm not saying that children of Christian parents, that we can know that they're regenerate, that God has done that work to bring him to himself just because of the faith of the parents. We also can't know that adults are regenerate either, just because they get baptized or or, or confess that they are a Christian. What we can know is that Paul views children of Christian parents as spiritually responsible. That's going to have implications for the way that we think about lots of different areas of, of life, about the way God works, about the way He treats families. If you've grown up in a house that um, perhaps no one was a Christian in your family and you've become a Christian, your upbringing, your upbringing will be very, very different to those that have grown up in a family whose parents were Christian. See, I, I can't tell you a time that I haven't trusted that Jesus is the Lord of the, of the universe and that He died for me. Now, that's got nothing to do with how great am I, but it's the fact that I grew up in a family where my parents became Christians when I was three months old. And the reality is that they, they, they taught me that Jesus is the true and living God. And that was my reality growing up. Just like they taught me that this color was black. So I trusted that this was black. And when I went to school, I was like, hey, you're wearing black shoes. And people, you know, that people didn't say to me, no, but when did you decide that was black for yourself? No one said to me that. They just, I just called it black. It's black. The same way I trusted Jesus. People don't go, when did you decide for yourself rather than just take on what your parents said? Now, there is something important about that. But the reality is, I I grew up trusting Jesus. Now, it's going to be very different from your story if you didn't grow up in a Christian family. So I'm laboring this point to help us here recognize that God's Word treats children of Christian parents in a way that we expect them to grow up in the fear and instruction of a Lord. Do treat them that way. But the other thing I want us to note, and not many of us will have kids. Sarah and I have four. We knew the limit of the number of kids that we wanted to have. When we got to four kids, we're like, that's definitely the limit when we had three. It's like you cross a line, you're like, boom, boom, that was the line back there. Uh, having four kids has been great. Um, 
But one of the traps, and this might sound weird to you, but maybe you've experienced, is that the passage doesn't, the passage says, children obey your parents. It does not say parents obey your children. Now, I think the world around us wants parents to, to kind of bow to every need of, of our kids. We've got to give them the best education. If they want to go to this school, then we want to get them into that school. If they want to play with that friend, if they want to stay up till 10 o'clock at night and just watch movies, but they're only 15 months old or something crazy, you're like, but our water around us says, yeah, that's fine. You can do what you want to do as long as you're happy. And, and parents become the kind of happiness providers for these children. We live in a world full of giving children whatever they want. But what we actually need, Paul says, is parents that lovingly lead, that hold out the rules. They aren't to obey the child. We'll see the way fathers are to act. But the child is called to obey the parents. And the reason Paul gives is because it's good for society to be this way. He gives us the reason, quoting the fifth commandment of the Ten Commandments. Look at verse 3. And he tells us it comes with a promise. What's the promise? You should do this so that it may go well with you and you may have long life in the land. Now, he's not saying, look, when you enter into Jerusalem, if you don't obey your parents, you get kicked out. Right? That's not what's going on when it says the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. It came down. He's saying it's a general principle of life. It will go well with you to listen to your parents' wisdom. They've lived a little longer than you. And that's helpful. It's interesting. Imagine for a moment a society where the children rule and all the adults do what the children say. I don't know what's going on in your head, but I've got pictures of fairy floss and kind of big, kind of those merry-go-rounds and crazy rides and all the sugar you can eat and all the kids will be like, yeah, they just be like shoving it down their throats. And for the first 10 seconds, that life's like, oh, this is awesome. Until you're spewing your guts up from the stupidity of not having lived and recognize what happens when a sugar coma hits or when, when you feel like you've eaten too much sugar. One of our children uh, had an experience at Easter a number of Easter's ago where he had free reign, unbeknownst to us, to chocolate Easter eggs. They weren't the good ones, you know, the ones that always look a little bit white and crusty on the outside, that the chocolate's a bit like, oh, how long's this been around for? Anyway, he decided that the thing for him to do was to eat all his Easter eggs in one sitting. <laughs> he no longer eats chocolate. Listen to your parents and obey them so it may go well with you, so that you won't have now an aversion to chocolate, so that you might have a long life in the land. It's interesting that throughout the Scriptures, we see that disobedience to parents is an indicator of the depravity of the nations. Romans 1.3 says that. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.2 talks about the sign of evil in the last days is children who don't obey their parents. A society that has children that disobey their parents is a society that's gone crazy. But do note that children are never excused from honouring our parents. See, to honour your parents is different to obey them. They're different words. In the Greek, they're different words entirely. If you've got a 30-year-old obeying their parents, then there's something very wrong. Sitting at home, go to the toilet, Johnny. Okay. <laughs> it's like, no, you can't buy that car. Buy this car. All right. Whatever you say, I've got to obey my parents. No, you won't do this degree. You'll do that degree. Okay. You're like, hang on, what are, you, what are you breeding here? This is some weird control paradigm that's happening where the parents want to have some sort of control over it, or the child's massive underfunctioner, and just like, I just, I just don't want to live, I don't want to grow up, I just want to sit at home and play games and eat pizza. Actually, what we're seeing here is that children are always 
to honor their parents. Now, I know honor looks different in different cultures. Um, for, for my background as, as an Australian, to honor your parents might be that you kind of, you just don't speak negatively of them in public. Um, that might be honoring your parents. For others of you, honoring your parents, particularly in their view, will be doing the exact degree they tell you to do in medicine or law or some sort of PhD study to get lots of money in five houses for all of your children uh, by the time they're 10, right? And that's very much that you're not honoring me unless you're doing that. How do we think through what it looks like as adults? Because all of us, you know, are children. We've all got parents. How, how do we look at honoring our parents? Well, a number of years ago, I was chatting uh, to someone who was thinking through whether um, they should stop their full-time work and shift into doing ministry work. They were thinking through their suitability for Christian ministry and thinking, is this something that would be helpful? I think people are encouraging me towards this. But they had non-Christian family, and they talked to their family about it, and their family were like, no way. Don't do that at all. And they came to me and saying, look, how do I think about honoring my parents when they're saying, don't do this, knowing I'm not a child anymore, I am an adult but I want to honour them in the Lord, is what the passage says. But how do I do that when we've got different masters that we're serving? And I think one of the things that's really helpful, one of the things that I said was, I think there's a number of things you've got to make sure you do is you you seek to honour your parents. Honouring means giving them the respect they deserve. They reared you. You ought to honour them. You ought to respect their position and, and, and think for a second that they might know something about you. They were there, remember, when you can't remember, when you were kind of being fed, whether it be a bottle or whatever it was, and you were vomiting. When, when you were young, they were there wiping your butt. Now, I can't remember that from my parents, but I know they did because I don't have massive scars and rashes from when my poo sat or in my butt for my whole life. They might know something about me and life, and I might actually want to listen to them. There's an there's a, there's a honor that is due to them for they've raised us. And so making sure we're listening to them and hearing what they have to say and their insights into us, I think that's really, really important. We want to listen so that they feel heard, so that they can say, yeah, I, I, think, I think you're hearing my, my take here. I don't think you should go into this ministry thing because of these reasons. And, and then be able to repeat the reasons back, not just as a parrot, but actually understanding what they're saying. And as we do that, I think honoring our parents means we're looking for the good in it. They might not be right about everything. They might be contra what the Bible is saying in some areas. But look for the good and go, what can I actually do here that might bring you honor? But do recognize that you're serving different masters. Even for Christian parents, that our master, as we make decisions in life, is not our parents. It's we honor our parents in the Lord. In the same way that the the Christian wife is to submit to her husband as to the Lord, if her husband says to do something that's against what God says, man, you go with the Lord every time. (laughs) And so something I think is really helpful is to try and imagine the reality of that day when Jesus comes back. When Paul says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, At that moment, my parents, no matter what they think of Jesus, will bow the knee and will say, yes, Jesus is king. I now see it. Whether that be willingly or or through gritted teeth, the whole world will see that Jesus is king. Well, we need to act in a way that our parents on that day, when they see the world through what God has said in his word, will say, you know what? You honored me by not doing what I said, but by listening to the King of kings and Lord of lords. You honoured me by doing what is right in the big scheme of things, in the whole universe, in the way that God works. Because you did what was right for the true and living God. And if we think through our decisions and the way we honour our parents that way, 
we also remember that our motives will be shown to all. And the way that we think about the world and the actions that we're taking, well, God sees those. He'll know whether we're just trying to get away with what we want to get away with or we're actually listening to them. Honour our parents with an end times perspective. But don't use it as an excuse to disrespect them. Now, it's not only children here who are to take an active role in following Jesus in these spirit-filled relationships. Fathers, Paul says, are to take an active role as well. Look at verse 4. Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, a couple of things to note here. I know not many of us are fathers. I hope many of us um, are one day, particularly the men amongst us. Um, it says fathers. It could have said parents, right? Paul can use that word. He just used it before. Children obey your parents. He knows the word parents. But he said fathers. He singles out the dads. To be a spirit-filled father is to have a role of bringing up children in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, if that means anything for Christian fathers and Christian men who desire to be fathers, we'd better know the Word of God, right? We'd better make sure that we're understanding who God is and what He's done. It's, it's our role to make sure we're, we're vibrantly engaging with the Word of God and letting the Scriptures shape and mold us and growing in our love and knowledge of God. Ladies, if you're looking for a potential guy to marry, I'm not going to point them out tonight. I don't have a slideshow for you. But you ought to be looking for one that takes seriously the Word of God. Doesn't approach it with an arrogance that says, I'm right, I've got this sorted, I'll just move through life, but sits under it and lets it shape their life. That gets wisdom from others. Someone who actually wants to grow and become more and more like Jesus every day and every year and every decade. And if you're a guy here that, that wants to get married, and at one point you think that'd be a good thing to do, then I want to encourage you to go deep in the Word of God. Not like some propeller head geek that's like, oh yes, I can, I can say the word love in four different languages. I must be an amazing Christian. No, that's not deep just because you might know some Greek words. But that the Word of God shapes your life. That you're humble. That you... Keep coming back to the Scriptures that you're consistent in letting brothers and sisters challenge you and grow you and shape you to be more like Jesus on that last day. We need to be more focused on becoming like Christ than looking like Calvin Klein, whoever Calvin Klein is. I don't even know, just a pair of underwear. Right? It's funny, I see some couples, when they fall pregnant, become really, really kind of excited about parenting. They start reading through the books, get a bit freaked out. They go, I'm going to read parenting books and I'll make sure I know all there is to know about kids. And I'm going to watch some YouTube videos and do the research. What's the best car seat? I'm going to get the safest car and the safest car seat. Then I'm going to go buy a cot that rocks my kids to sleep so that they sleep really well. I'm going to read eight parenting books on how to get kids to sleep because that's super important. We spend all this time and energy thinking through, man, how am I going to bring this child up? Am I going to have enough resources to be able to do it? Am I going to be able to put them in a position to get them in the school that I want them to get into? And we don't give any thought to growing ourselves up spiritually. How will I model humble, spirit-filled, sitting under the Word of God to be more like Jesus? Friends, that is what we need to be focused on. Next week, we're about to announce at church a number of different ways you can be growing in your love and knowledge of God. One of those is through our Generate Courses. There'll be a course on understanding church history. 
You're like, wow, I hate history. I used to hate history. Then I realized there are people that have made the mistakes that I'm going to make if I don't learn from them. And actually, I need to come and look at the way Christians have learnt from God throughout history and be shaped by that and sit that under the Scriptures and understand more of who God is and what He's done. That would be a great opportunity to go deep in the Word. Well, another one on how to think through Christian leadership and to lead others. Or perhaps it's just making sure you're kind of regular getting along to connect groups so that you're growing and you're giving others an opportunity to speak into your life. You know, when you're there and you're chatting through stuff and, and maybe God just prompts you and you kind of feel convicted about something, but you're like, will I share it with the group? And you go, nah, it's just easier to stay the way I am and not share it. To go, no, others need this as much as me. Actually, I've really been struggling with this. I'm really struggling to understand how God could do this and actually share it. Or I've been struggling to, to put God as, as ruler over this area of my life or that area of life. That's what we want to be like. People that are eager to get to church, eager to encourage others, eager to follow others up, not because we have to, but because, wow, look at what God has done for us. He's called us into his family. He's given us his spirit and his word, and he's shaping us to be more like Jesus. That's what we ought to be. And fathers have an amazing privilege to model to their kids how to live as Christians in the world. We'll always model. The question is, will we be a good one or a bad one? Well, the spirit-filled Christian will seek to be a spirit-filled family, as will the spirit-filled slave and the spirit-filled master. Come with me to Ephesians 6, 5, as we kind of land this plane on the easy bit. That was sarcasm as well. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. Now, the first thing we need to understand as we read that is that first century slavery in the whole was not what we think about when we think of slavery, that 18th century slave trading kind of boats, people die, don't really care about them type of thing. That's that's not what was going on. Let me read to you a New Testament scholar, Wayne Grudem, who explains first century slavery for us. He says, slavery was the most common employment situation on the Roman Empire at the time of the New Testament. A bond servant, which is actually the word there used for slave, could not quit his job or seek another employment until he obtained his freedom. But there were extensive laws that regulated the treatment of such bond servants and, and gave them considerable protection. Bond servants could own their own property and often purchase their freedom by about the age of 30. They held positions of significant responsibility, such as teachers, physicians, nurses, managers of estates, retail merchants, and business executives. The first century institution of bond servants is far different from the picture that comes to mind when we modern readers hear the word slavery. He says this helps us understand why the New Testament did not immediately prohibit the institution of bond servants, while at the same time it gave us the principles that led to the eventual abolition of slavery. See, what was going on here is something that's very different. There were rules involved. We've got to be careful as we read our Bibles, not to read our view of a certain thing or situation into what the Bible's saying, but to go, what is actually being said here? And the second thing we've got to be cautious of is that it come along to this passage and go, ah, I read my situation in life into what the passage is saying. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. You're like, man, I've got that job. I've got to work 24 hours a week in that job. I feel like a slave. 
Right? You felt like that? I hate work. Work feels like slavery. This is talking to me. I can take the principles here, talking about slavery, and apply them directly to me because I feel like a slave in my work. I've got to keep doing it, otherwise I can't eat. So I'm kind of enslaved in a way. <laughs> but that's not what it's talking about. There's going to be some principles that we can get from it in the way we think about work and employment. But really, first century slavery is not the same as modern work. You can't just come along and do this one-to-one kind of application. Right? The first century slave or bond servant, they couldn't leave their job until they paid off their debt. You are right, we can change jobs if we can get another job. We can be like, oh, this job sucks, I'm out of here. And we can leave and be like, see you later, we're done. Right? Most of us are in this freedom of being able to change our jobs. The only, the only thing that might be similar is if you enter into one of those contracts where you say, oh, my employer is going to pay for my education. I'm going to, they're going to educate me for four years and they're going to pay for all of it. And then I have to work for them. I'm bonded to them for another four years and then they release me. That might be something that's a little bit similar. You can't leave or you can, but you've got to free yourself from it. There's a sense there that that's, that's, that you're bonded to them. That's probably the closest equivalent that we have today, but that's not the majority of us today. If we apply it directly to our employment where we've got the right to leave, we actually miss the depth of what Paul's saying. We actually miss what true freedom is, and that's the thing I want to focus into now here tonight. The Spirit-filled believer, the one who's been given every spiritual blessing in Christ, can fully enjoy all the blessings of being a child of God, of having God lavish His love upon them and remain a slave. Like, what? I thought God would want freedom. Doesn't God want us to be free? He's actually saying there's something about being a follower of Jesus that means you can still be enslaved, whether that be in chains or whether it be in some form of bondservant. And you're not called to revolt. You're not called to stick it to the boss or escape your kind of bondage and find your freedom. You're told you are free in Christ. You're a child of God. There's a freedom that is greater than being freed from slavery. The Christian slave's freedom comes irrespective of their bondage to their earthly master. In fact, their freedom is displayed in how they serve their earthly master. They're free to serve their earthly master as they serve the true master. Look at verse 6. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ... Do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not people, knowing that whatever good one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. See, the person that has been captivated by Jesus, has been adopted into God's family, who's filled with the Spirit of God, has had such a significant change that whether they are a slave or free in this time on earth, it's irrelevant compared to the new master that they serve. If you trust in Jesus, you've become slaves to the best master in the universe. We think freedom is doing whatever we want, but man, when we do that, we end up like kids with fairy floss and amusement wheels. We wreck our lives and we think, I just want to do this, I don't care what God thinks. We put ourselves in the driver's seat, we, we, we cause a train wreck of life. We do not make good masters of ourselves, do we? Let's look at human history, look at the way humanity has acted. Now, the best master in the universe is the one who created it, who's the one who's in control of it, and is the one who came and died for it and will come back again to judge the living and the dead. 
living for him, that master who, who died for our sin, who paid the penalty that we deserve. That is what real freedom is. I'm not doing whatever I want. And the Christian who's been free to serve God as their master can therefore live within the confines of slavery, whether it be a good master or a bad master, because they're doing it not to please their master, but to please their heavenly master, the one who's died for them, the one who is coming back again and bringing them into new life. Paul is saying living for Jesus, being a spirit-filled Christian, has implications for every situation in life, but it doesn't remove us from the situations that we're in in life. It calls us to live for Jesus through it. How often do you find yourself living for someone other than Jesus? Caring about your reputation, caring about what your boss thinks or your lecturer thinks or your parents thinks, rather than what God thinks is number one. It shows us who our functional masters are, doesn't it? How often do you submit only when your boss or your parents or whoever it is that's in authority is watching? I don't know how many of you drive a car, but one of the experiences I've noticed almost universally is when you're driving along kind of happy with the speed that you're going and a police car comes the other day, what does everyone do? Slows down. We all kind of take our foot off and kind of slow down a little and be like, whoa. Now, it's not because we just want to be super cautious and give the police more room to get through to their emergency because we don't want to get caught for speeding. That's why we do it. And the same thing happens when we think about, well, will I be able to get away with it? Now, the other day, um, I went into Bunnings, which is the thief of lots of our family's money because we go there and spend it on things that we need. Not thief, do it willingly. And uh, I bought a number of things that we needed and I bought some paint to do some painting. Uh, but I bought it from the discount section where they had a mist tint and they gave me a huge discount. Man, paint's expensive at the moment. Anyway, it was 75 bucks. Anyway, so I'm walking out with this, and I go to the counter, I put it on the counter, they scan everything. I walk out and I'm like, man, that was cheap. I bought a number of things and I was really, really cheap. And I get into the car, I put it in, I look at the receipt and they forgot to charge me for the paint. And I'm like, sucked in Bunnings, Right? I was above board. I put it all on the counter. The fact that they didn't scan the paint, I'm like, you know, I can get it. They get so much money. They mark up so much stuff. I was like, yes, yeah, stick it to the man, Rowan. You've won. And then I'm like, how can I, with any integrity, stand up here tonight and say, we need to obey our earthly masters and live for our king when no one's watching and not walk straight back into Bunnings and say, you guys didn't charge me for this. So, tail between my legs, I went back in, I put it on the counter and said, oh, sorry, you guys, I don't think you charged me for this. And they went, oh, sorry, we didn't charge you. I'm like, well, you can give it to me for free. And they're like, oh, no, we'll just, and they gave me like a $5 discount off it. I didn't get to talk about whether uh, I was a Christian. I wanted to somehow bring that up and, and see it be a great gospel moment. I could tell you everyone in Bunnings was converted at that point. <laughs> that would have been awesome. Nothing like that happened. Nothing at all. But I know in the end, my Heavenly Father saw my heart, and I know I serve Him as number one. We need to keep doing that in every area of life, no matter what our situation is. That's the principle we can pull for this, from this. Whether that be in the workplace with our bosses when they're watching or not, uh, when we're living in the world around us with kings and rulers, and the way we do our tax return, and the way we think about exams, when you know, we can get away with it because it's online. They don't know I've got the book open on the table next to me. Every single one of us will stand before the true and living God on that last day, and He knows our hearts. He says the best way to live, the Spirit-filled way of living, is to live as a child of God now. Don't get caught up in trying to get what you think you deserve but isn't yours yet. Trust me, 
trust that you have every spiritual blessing in me, even when others aren't looking. And he has the same application for the Christian master. And here's the last point we'll land on. Verse 9, Masters, treat your slaves in the same way, without threatening them, because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no favoritism with him. See, masters are to treat their slaves, Christian masters are to treat their slaves that they have, not by obeying them, not in the same way by obeying them, but by recognizing they have the same master. So they are masters to their slaves, modeling the way that Jesus masters us with kindness and compassion and laying down his life for us. They too will have to stand and give an account to the ultimate master on the last day. So remember, as you lead others, whether that be in work or wherever you are, if you have a position of authority over others, that you serve the true and living God as your master. And think about the way that you lead others in that. The extreme case of slavery here in this passage that Paul gives us is a challenge to the way we think about our earthly allegiances and our earthly freedom. Sometimes we can have the tendency to think that my allegiance to Jesus means, well, I don't have to listen to the kings and the rulers and the bosses. You know, I've got a bigger boss in heaven. He's going to come and smash them. That's not the way he works at all. We need to think about the way that we serve our heavenly master and therefore the way that we treat others in our relationships as spirit-filled followers of Jesus. Whether these people are a king or queen, uh, my wife or my husband, my parents or my children or my boss or my employees. We're freed to love and serve one another in these relationships. That means the spirit-filled life enables us as we sit under the word of God, to live very differently to the world around us, to stand out like stars in the sky. Because we've got different priorities in the way we live, don't we? We're serving our heavenly master, our heavenly king. We have a different focus. We want to see his kingdom growing and we want to see people coming to know him and we want to think about the way that we live, not for our wealth and comfort and security, not here and now, but for Jesus' fame and glory. We live differently in our relationships because we have a different future. That's secure. We don't need to try and grasp it all now. And it's an attractive life because it's a life that's lived the way God intended us to live. If you're here tonight and you've heard some of this and there's a sense where you want in, you want to live out this life with Jesus and put him as your king, then can I encourage you, don't hold back. Tonight, Come to him and ask him to forgive you. Say sorry for stepping in his place and calling the shots in your life and ask him to be the ruler of your life and share it with us. Come chat with me or Marcus or someone that invited you here. We'd love to chat with you and help you to see what it is to live in the light of having Jesus die in our place, rise again and be our king. But if you do trust in Jesus tonight, I want to encourage you, keep living for him. Keep living the spirit-filled life by taking God's word seriously. Maybe tonight as you chat together, as we go out to dinner and hang out, ask one another, what's one thing God prompted you in tonight? What's one area you felt the spirit of God pushing you to change in or to to grow in or to be comforted because of? And, And pray about it together. Be real with one another. Let's be a church that looks more like Jesus at the end of this year than we did at the start of this year. Let's be a church amongst the world around us that stands out as spirit-filled children of life who live differently in every relationship and in every way 
Because we have a master who is in heaven, who is the God over all, and has loved us immensely and given us his son. Let's be people that live as children of the light. Let's pray. Father God, tonight as we hear your word, as we think through the complexities of relationship and how often, Lord, we stumble to live as people who have Jesus as our master, we thank you so much that Jesus has come and paid the price for us. That we can stand here tonight forgiven, called your children because Jesus died on the cross, he rose again, he conquered death, and he stood in our place. Father, would that reality shape the way we think about living in relationships with others? The way we think about the way we honor our parents, the way we might parent or father our children, and the way we think about the implications slavery has for what freedom is and how we can live in your world with, with, with authorities like kings and rulers and workplaces and bosses. But we ask through all of it that you would help us to be a people who take your word seriously, who live for you in every way, and that you'd show us where we don't so that we might change to be more like your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.